0: Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, June Rodner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping this week in our regular Thursday morning spot at 11 a.m. on July 12th. As usual, news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Margot Sanger Katz, the New York Times. Good morning. Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. And Julie Appleby, my colleague here at Kaiser Health News. Good morning. So we're going to get right to the news, and there is lots of it this week. But before we get to our health policy news, we have some podcast news to announce. Our podcast mate, Paige Winfield Cunningham, delivered a happy, healthy baby boy yesterday. Gray Joseph Cunningham is adorable, and all are doing well, reports Dad Jameson. So congrats to all, and we look forward to having Paige and Sarah Cliff, who also had a baby boy last month, back with us in the fall. Meanwhile, in health policy, I think most of this week's news falls under the umbrella of the Affordable Care Act at risk again. Let us start with the Supreme Court. That seemed to be the biggest news. Much of the talk about filling the vacancy left by the retirement of Justice Anthony Kennedy has been about abortion and the possible overturn of Roe v. Wade, the landmark abortion case. But Democrats in the Senate seem to be highlighting the possible impact of nominee
1: Brett Kavanaugh on the Affordable Care Act. Why is that? I think there are two reasons. Uh, one is that if they have any chance of stopping Kavanaugh from getting on the court, it's if is going to be if they, they hold the together, the Democrats, all of the Democratic senators will have to vote against his confirmation, and they're going to need to pull over at least one Republican senator. And the two that are seen as the most gettable are Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. And Both of them uh, are pro-choice, so they may be persuadable on sort of Roe v. Wade grounds, but they also both voted to voted against the repeal of, of Obamacare last summer. And so I think there's a view that uh, if they make this confirmation fight about health care, about pre-existing conditions, that that might be a way to persuade them. I think another reason is this, the Democrats feel like this is a good message for them. Their voters get really energized by it. To the degree that they're going to lose this fight, they might as well get people really fired up about stuff where they think they're on solid ground.
0: And also, I mean, they're talking about this lawsuit, which is an awfully long way from the Supreme
2: Court. <laughs> Right. But, you know, it's such an interesting lawsuit and it's had so many news pegs already, particularly when, you know, this is the Texas lawsuit when um, DOJ decided they weren't really going to defend um, the law. And and, and, the, and
0: I will point out that we talked about this lawsuit in February when it was filed, when everybody was like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so just, just remind us, this is 20 Republican attorneys general.
2: Right. Um, who are saying that the the idea is that the mandate since Congress repealed the mandate or the um, tax part the, of the mandate. tax part of the mandate so it's no longer so ACA is no longer constitutional in their view um, and the idea particularly is to sever kind of this pre-existing condition protections um, and they say because the it's no longer a tax that 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 would would have to go away and, and sort of the opposite argument um, is that the, you know, there was congressional intent, obviously, to keep pre-existing conditions because they kept pre-existing conditions. <laughs> they, <laughs>
0: and, they passed the law. They, they took away right, one part and take and away the other And kept the other.
2: And, the other. Um, and so, I, but I think, um, Margot, that you're absolutely right, that it's a it's a good message for Democrats. It's something they're cohesive on. They don't really have that 100% on abortion. You know, they're, they're on not as solid ground there. So this is something I think that is, uh, it, it behooves them to bring this up probably more often.
0: And also, I mean, on on abortion, they're they're the Democrats who are from mostly anti-abortion states and who basically try to say nothing as much as they can on abortion are all very out there on protections for pre-existing conditions, and they're the ones who are who are up for election this year. You know, it's the the, the Joe Donnellys of Indiana and the Heidi Heit camps of North Dakota and the Joe Mansions of of West Virginia, um, who are all. Very out there on the well, you know, I'm worried about pre-existing conditions and not saying a word about Roe v. Wade.
1: I think there's just a, a few things that we should point out about the sort of factual nature of this claim that the Democrats are making. So one is we do not know if this case will find its way to the Supreme Court. There are lots of cases that are in the federal district courts that the Supreme Court never takes up. Uh, this has just been filed; like there hasn't even been a decision. So it's not impossible, and, and perhaps you know, given the stakes, it's it's perhaps even likely that it will get to the Supreme Court. But we don't know that. Uh, We also don't really know if it did get to the Supreme Court that Kavanaugh would have a decisive vote. So this case has some relatively novel legal issues. It's not exactly the same as either of the cases that came before the Supreme Court before about the Affordable Care Act. But it's actually in some dimensions reasonably similar to the case that the court decided in 2011 about the constitutionality of this very same provision. And at that time, I just think it is worth remembering, Justice Kennedy would have declared the individual mandate of the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional and he would have invalidated the entire law as a result of that determination. So Justice Kennedy, who's vacating the seat that Kavanaugh would fill, he was never on the side of the Affordable Care Act. On the other hand, the Chief Justice John Roberts voted to uphold the Affordable Care Act in 2011, and then again in 2014 when there was a different attack against it. Now, these are legal questions. They're not just political questions. But I do think that the fact that we've seen the Chief Justice kind of swing on the side of the ACA twice before gives us some indication that actually probably he's the swing vote on this, not... A future Justice Kavanaugh. Right, whoever would take,
0: yeah, whoever would take Kennedy's place. That is, that is a very important point.
2: Oh, I think, and some people have argued, too, that um, that the Chief Justice's, um, the way he came down was based on a ruling that Kavanaugh had had done earlier. So it's sort of interesting to see that kind of come full circle and, and whether it would make a difference now that it essentially is not a tax, the penalty is no longer a tax, and whether that changes the argument
0: although i think as you mentioned i think this case is way more about severability than anything else it's about whether if you take one piece out of it does the rest of it necessarily fall and there's you know all of the all of the lawyers who disagreed on the previous two cases have gotten together and they wrote a, a amicus brief they sent it to the court that said yeah this one is there's no question congress as you said congress took this part out they left the other parts in that kind of answers their question about intent right. So, uh, anyway, we will we will move on for the moment. I'm sure we will be back to to this fight in future weeks. Um, but over the weekend, the Trump administration announced it was freezing risk adjustment payments to insurers as a result of a court ruling in New Mexico that happened in February. Now, before we get too deeply into this, I want to point out that these risk adjustment payments are not the same as the risk corridor payments that we talked about last week. I'm sorry this is so confusing. But they are part of the same effort in the Affordable Care Act to try to make sure insurers don't get unintended windfalls by signing up too many healthy people or unintended losses by signing up too many sick ones. So Margot, you're going to do your extra credit early this week because it's about this. Tell us what's going on here.
1: Yeah, so I just wanted to recommend for my extra credit a really good article about this whole issue by Jonathan. Jonathan Cohn at Huffington Post. He did just a really lovely job of laying out some of the policy consequences of this decision and also some of the kind of legal concerns and considerations around it. So I really recommend that piece. um, And I will try to do my best to summarize now what he concluded uh, really beautifully. But, you know, the idea of risk adjustment is it's meant to prevent insurers from doing things that would get them all the healthy customers. Under Obamacare, Uh, You know, insurers have to take you regardless of your health status, and everyone is trying to charge a premium based on sort of an average person in the market. And so what this program does is it kind of shifts around money from one insurer to another insurer. If one insurer gets all the patients with HIV and the other insurer gets all the patients, you know, who are active runners, then the, the... insurer that's covering the runners is going to have fewer medical expenses, and they're going to end up being really profitable relative to the HIV plan. And so what risk adjustment says is, we're going to benchmark all of these premiums and all the sickness of the people against some kind of average, and we're going to just move some money around to try to compensate for the different people that have signed up for different plans. And What the Trump administration has said is because of a court ruling uh, in New Mexico, they have to suspend this program for last year's premiums. And it's not exactly clear what's going to happen in the future, although it looks as though they have addressed the problem that the New Mexico court identified for next year. So, I mean, this is such a weird decision that they've made because... It's not really bad for all the insurers, like the ones that we're going to have to no, pay. B- a
0: bunch of insurers owe an awful
1: lot of money that yeah. they're now not having to pay, at least yet. And so a sure. lot of them aren't going to get some money that they feel
3: that they were owed. So it's, right. Uh, but yeah. it's like if you're
1: an insurer who was going to have to pay a lot of money, this is like a little mini windfall for you. But I think what a lot of experts say is bad about this. It's sort of changing the rules of the game after it's been played. And It sends a signal to all of the insurers. You can't count on the federal government to be a good partner to you, to keep the rules stable. And I think in that way, it is similar to what happened with those risk corridor payments. So that was a different program that was supposed to protect the insurers from risk in the early years of Obamacare. It was in the statute, and then Congress pulled away the appropriation after a very short period. And so none of the companies got these payments that they were expecting, that they had set their prices expecting.
0: Well, they got some of them, but it was like 13%. <laughs> it was not, it so was they not got,
1: what they, they got were 13 counting 13 cents on. on the dollar. Yeah. But this, this program... Um, is budget neutral. So it doesn't actually cost the federal government anything. What they're really just doing is taking money from one insurer, giving it to another one. And weirdly, what the New Mexico court said was that's the problem with the program, that the um, Obama administration had failed to adequately explain why it had to be done in this way. So anyway, I don't know. I mean, this is such a weird thing. I feel like there is there appears to be some disagreement even within the Trump administration about whether this is the right way forward. We're seeing a lot of signals from CMS that they want to try to fix it as quickly as possible. That, you know, Seema Verma, the administrator of CMS, was on the record on Saturday when they made the announcement saying that they're going to try to rectify this as quickly as possible. Um, So we'll see if they do.
3: And they actually could because they already fixed it for 2019. And so some folks say they could just issue a interim final rule and take care of it for 2017. So, um, But, Julie,
0: yeah. this has implications beyond, I mean, obviously the insurers who are involved, um, because this could sort of spill over into that just sort of continuing, as, as Margot said, the continuing uncertainty by insurers and, you know, make them either, you know, less inclined to, to participate or more inclined to raise their premiums,
2: right?
3: Right. You know, there's a lot of discussion about that. So one, one of my sources said to me, well, this is a message to insurers. That hey, the administration doesn't have your back. Um, I think they've heard that already, so I think, I think there's that uncertainty. But also remember, they've already filed their rates, the, most of them, and they've already said they're going to be in for next year. So the real question is, will this have much of an effect on the rates for 2019? And it's not clear because
0: has everybody filed their rates? I've seen think a lot of not. Them. We haven't
3: seen a lot of them yet. I think there's been some look at eight different states where there's the, they've come out. Um, but but they could also refile their rates. So they but but the question is, would regulators let them build? in additional rates for money that they're owed. Because remember, these are accounts receivable. They may get the money. Right. These are from so 2017 we're it's talking It's not about. clear that that they will raise rates, but the uncertainty factor, they could certainly build in for uncertainty. And, and this added with some of the other things like the, lack, the, the mandate's gone now. Um, everybody's expecting these short-term plans to be able to be sold for a full year, and that may affect rates as well in the ACA market. So there's just a lot
2: of uncertainty, and this just adds to it. I think we heard from Seema Verma just earlier today um, at a breakfast, and she didn't seem to Offer anything that would take away that uncertainty. She, you know, there is, as Margot mentioned, or maybe there could be an interim final rule or something like that. And she didn't commit at all. She said, "We're working. We're looking at this," but I didn't hear any real options. Um, I don't, Julie, I don't know if you although, did.
0: yeah, I was there at the breakfast too. Although she did answer the the key question of why did they decide to do it now when this court case was decided back in February, and she said the answer is that this is normally the time when they would have to actually put out, you know, the final numbers for, you know, who how, which insurers which are getting. How they much money. yeah. But they, they had to announce that they were that, that they sort of ran out of time. They asked the judge to to set aside the ruling, um, and they had not heard back from him yet. So they, they ended up sort of doing what they did because this was, I guess, as late as they could go, um, and and not put it out. It still seemed weird that they announced this on a weekend for a case that got decided, you know, five months ago.
3: And it was also conveniently just past the July first
0: deadline for insurers telling uh, regulators if they were going to stay in the market for next year. Well, uh, uh, well. moving on also from the let's see if we can break the ACA files. HHS announced this week that it will be cutting, again, funding for navigators. These are people who help other people sign up for health insurance plans or sometimes steer them to Medicaid or other coverage they might be eligible for. This is the second big cut to this program, right? It got, got cut last mm-hmm. year.
3: It did get cut last year, and they have decided that they were going to cut. They are going to cut funding to ten million dollars for next year, and that's down from thirty-two million this year. So it's still not a lot of money, but they are going to cut that down to ten million. Again, this is a program that helps people enroll. It helps walk them through the various uh, um, insurance plans that are available to them, the subsidies that they might be able to get, that type of thing. Um, there's a mixed opinion on how, on how much this will affect people. The administration says that only about 1% of people who went to a navigator actually enrolled with that navigator. Now, some of those folks may have gone home and enrolled on their own. We don't know. So whether the 1% figure is right or, or not, we don't know. Or some of those know. folks might
0: have been eligible for Medicaid. They might they have been eligible for something
3: else and enrolled there. So so we don't really know. But, but they say that's one of the reasons why they're cutting this back. Um, there are other programs that have people who help you sign up. Medicare is one of them. There's the state health insurance program that helps people sign up for Medicare. So this is not an unusual thing to have folks helping you sign up. Um, but The administration also says, well, you know, folks can go to brokers. Now, the brokers I've spoken with in the past and also this year say that they are overwhelmed. And B, they don't get paid very much because the insurers have cut back their commissions. And they're not actually really excited about helping even more folks. And they have often referred people to navigators to help them enroll. So I don't think we're going to see a lot of folks um, rushing out to brokers to, to get them to help enroll. So so it'll be interesting to see what happens with this program. But I think one of the most interesting things in what they said is that they want navigators to actually counsel applicants about some of these non-Affordable Care Act alternatives that are coming out. These are skimpier plans. These are short-term plans that may go from the 30 days they're now allowed to be to be a full year. their are association health plans. And remember, these are things that don't necessarily cover all of the benefits the Affordable Care Act does. And in the case of short term plans, they don't they don't generally even have to take people if you have a pre existing condition. So these are not the kinds of plans that folks coming to a navigator are probably going to be interested in. And the other thing is... Or they you,
0: might be interested in them because they're cheaper, but they're then cheaper, they discover but, that when they need them, they don't cover things. Right.
3: And and many of the folks that are going to Navigators are going to be eligible for a subsidy or maybe even Medicaid. And in that case, those plans would be far less expensive than even some of these skimpier plans. So it's just curious that they want folks to do that. But again, that's part of what we were talking about here about, about some of these other alternatives they're putting out there that the insurers feel is going to undermine the Affordable Care Act marketplace by pulling the younger and healthier people out into some of these Alternative plans and leaving only the the sicker folks in the ACA plans.
0: So one of the things that that uh, you know. Uh, Administrator Verma said at the the breakfast this morning is that they feel like this, as you mentioned, wasn't cost effective because it you know costs too much per person to to get these people signed up. Um, but uh, but then she said you know they can go to brokers and agents. Although as someone pointed out, brokers and agents also get paid, um, also by the insurers, so that it's not like sending people to brokers instead of navigators is going to lower premiums, which is what she originally said because it's all coming out of the same pot.
1: Um, it, it, well, it's also the Funding for the navigator program comes out of user fees that CMS charges to insurers to sell plans on the exchange. So if you want to sell an Obamacare plan, you have to pay, I think it's 6% of your premium as sort of a tax. And that goes into a pool that's supposed to help with a lot of these services that the federal exchange provides. And one of them is this navigator program. So one of the things that I wonder about is like, What's going to happen to this money? So they've cut it by 85%, a little bit more than 85%. They've cut the Navigator funding. The Navigator funding over the last two years. They have not cut the user fee that's being charged to insurers. They've also cut the advertising budget for the exchanges. So they used to spend, I think it was like $100 million a year on all different kinds of advertisement, uh, television, online, other radio. Now they're spending a tenth of that. And all that money is supposed to be coming out of this pool. This is not money that taxpayers are directly paying for. This is money that the insurers are paying for in order to sort of pool their resources and have there be collective marketing. So one thing I haven't seen from the administration is that they're going to lower these user fees and and that yeah and it's
0: you know it's important as, as you mentioned those user fees are how they promote the ideas that the insurers would pay them because then it would it would be outreach to people who would then come and sign up for insurance so these these user fees were going to benefit the insurers
1: and If they lowered the user fees, that would lower insurance premiums. I think there is an argument to be made if you think that the Navigator program and the advertisement are an inefficient use of money, that they're not actually bringing enough people into the market and that having them is just causing premiums to be higher, then there actually is a related action that they could take that would lower premiums, which is to lower the user fees that are funding them. You know, we'll, we'll we'll
0: see if that happens. Um, uh, meanwhile, there are a couple of topics that are not directly related to the Affordable Care Act. Um, president Trump, in his downtime from pursuing his trade war with China and his fight with NATO, took to Twitter earlier this week to trash drug maker Pfizer for raising drug prices. You may remember back in May, the president predicted we would see major voluntary price drops, but that mostly hasn't happened, right, Anna?
2: No, that has not happened. Um, I think we saw, so January and July are usually when drug makers raise their prices, um, you know, in incremental amounts. And so we saw Pfizer um, do about they raised prices on about 100 drugs. Um, And so that was, you know, that made news and they weren't the only one. But um, Pfizer caught the eye of the president, obviously. And and so he tweeted about it. um, And we saw a day later that Pfizer um, talked, you know, the CEO, Ian Reid, talked to President Trump and agreed um, to delay the price. The price increases, so they, so they did them. not cancel them. Yeah, they they said we'll we'll wait six months. We'll wait till January and see where it's at. If you've implemented this blueprint, that's going to incentivize us to lower our prices. Maybe we'll do something in that realm. But we're giving you another six months. So President Trump declared it as a victory, as he does. Um, and then, but we've seen um, actually there was a. a a look today some of my Bloomberg colleagues did that saw you know there were other companies that raised their prices as well and they've not moved you know you have Celgene and Roche and, and Novo Nordisk and these are important drugs they're cancer drugs and insulin and things like that um and and they haven't haven't done anything um and, they haven't and been
0: tweeted at they yet. haven't
2: been tweeted at and and so it's sort of it's, pharma certainly is wondering like what sort of precedent does this set like if if Trump decided to, Tweet at each of them what would happen. Um, It doesn't seem like that he's going to do that. He's on to NATO and and other things. Um, But, you know, as well as what happens, did Pfizer buy them a little bit of time? And I think that's what people are trying to wonder now because there was sort of this movement if Pfizer is going to do this and the Trump is going to tweet at them, people got a little afraid in the industry that something is going to come down pretty harsh on us and pretty quickly. Um, And then Pfizer. Kind of diffused that, and and so you know we're looking probably a little bit later on on some of the things that they could have implemented on the blueprint. That I, I think for a split second there they were trying to move more quickly.
1: <laughs> I feel like people have really downplayed what happened. It is true that these are price increases that are just being delayed and not uh, erased entirely. But still, like six months of charging less for your drugs, that's like a real change in the business of Pfizer. It's going to change their profitability, and. I don't know. It's just, I think it is a strange precedent that, you know, the president decided that he was going to put this one drug company in his sights. He tweeted at them quite aggressively. His health and human services secretary, Alex Azar, also singled them out and tweeted at them. And, you know, we heard early in the administration from a lot of corporations that they were really, and I think this was true particularly in the health sector, that they were really scared of this kind of Twitter attack, that they wanted to just kind of stay on the right side of the president and not be singled out, not be attacked in this way. Or
0: at least not stick their heads up so that they could be attacked this way.
1: So, you know, I, I think it's it's hard to know whether Pfizer did the right thing, obviously. Maybe they have diffused things. Maybe they've made things a little bit more comfortable for the rest of the industry. But I think it is just worth noting that the president has used this bully pulpit to single out one company, to question its price increases. And, it ha- it, and he has, at least in this limited way, succeeded in beating them back. Right. What well, I,
2: I do think that Pfizer's, you know, when as soon as he did it, obviously, I checked their stock, right? Like, what's going <laughs> on? Um, and so it, it took a, a tiny little dip. You saw movement immediately. It wasn't detrimental to the company by any means, and it rallied back. It was back. a pretty it, shocking graph, though. It was a shocking graph. But, but it, it came it, back. Yeah, yeah, it it, right, it, came it rallied, back. rallied back pretty quickly. Um, and I think if you're a another drug maker and you saw that, you're probably thinking we can weather that. That was a blip, and you know, if we just ignore him next time he does it, maybe maybe we get away with it, um, or maybe think you know maybe it's still a calculation that you don't want that reputational risk. Um, I, I'm not sure what what the drug companies have decided or or will decide on that front.
0: And of course everybody started talking about it, including us. I mean, so it's it's not just sort of the the blip. It was big national news. But
1: it's just it is it is just worth remembering how weird it is that we have the president of the United States, you know, going after individual corporations because he dislikes their business choices. I mean, we just that that's new. <laughs> it's also curious why did he pick just Pfizer when, you know,
2: others are raising their prices too. So I think Pfizer is the most recognizable, would be my guess. I mean, and maybe that's not true for the American public, but for well, me, at least, you know, maybe it's the it was largest. Maybe it on Fox,
0: which right. we know he watches. <laughs> I mean, the people have drawn correlations. More than once. All right. One last story this week. Uh, It seems the Trump administration blocked a resolution at the World Health Organization in Geneva promoting breastfeeding. Now, at first, this seemed like a pretty clear case of protecting the interests of interests of infant formula makers over human purveyors of breast milk. In other words, moms. But it turns out there's more to this story than it seems. Uh,
2: What do you guys make of, of all of this fuss? I thought the story originally um, was fascinating. Just seeing how the the administration was at Ecuador. I think he was originally going to introduce this resolution promoting breastfeeding and and trying to say like, hey, let's you know not let formula makers have these messages out there that maybe are misleading and. Um, just reading about the back and forth and sort of this this bullying that the the Trump administration did, and then ultimately, yeah, apparently
0: they threatened to you know pull all U.S. aid from Ecuador if they introduced the bre- breastfeeding, breastfeeding resolution.
2: And and then Russia is the one that steps in and and saves everyone and <laughs> decides to introduce the resolution. Um, so I, I thought it was it was fascinating. But then um, we have sort of seen I think some mothers come out and say like you know. I feel bullied to breastfeed, and what if I can't? And it's really difficult. I I can't say that that's the case. I, I don't have children, but um, you hear a lot from others that they feel sort of this pressure to be perfect, and and to and I think breastfeeding is one of those things. And so um, maybe they weren't happy about the bullying, but there might be some sort of upside to this that they they don't feel like there needed to be sort of a resolution when they feel. Believe the other there was way. some
0: response from mothers who have breastfed, and we actually don't have any of that at the table this week um who said that you know that that some of the language might be a little bit problematic um so it it was it was just sort of. Of all the places that you would, you know, wonder that that things, you know, might sort of blow up, this was not one I think that most people were expecting.
1: My, my sense is that there are some important international differences. So in the United States, breastfeeding actually is the dominant form of feeding infants. And I do think that there are women who feel, you know, like they're under a lot of pressure to do it, even if there are various reasons why it's difficult for them to do it. And... In the US, we have clean water. And so that makes infant formula a viable alternative that is safe and that we know is good for um, childhood development. But in a lot of other countries of the world, I mean, this was a World Health Declaration. A lot of other countries in the world, there actually are very large advantages to breastfeeding over formula feeding, because water is not safe and children can be sickened by using unclean water in their infant formula. So. I think this plays out differently in the U.S. The kind of politics, the breastfeeding fight in the U.S. is different. We're an affluent country and we you know, have all these weird pressures on mothers. I think as a global health matter, most global health experts felt that this was an appropriate resolution because if you thought about the kind of spectrum of nations that were going to be affected by these messages, on balance, a lot of them were going to be better off with more breastfeeding and less formula feeding.
0: Well, and also it was a response to a, a decades-long fight about the promotion of infant formula in countries where the water is not necessarily clean. And I mean, the cost. They, Don't forget yeah. the
3: cost. You have to pay for formula. So. Yeah, there's that, too.
0: So it it has been a politically fraught issue for some time, but it was sort of odd to see it sort of, you know, come back up. Uh, Mm -hmm. You never know where news will find you. Um, Okay, it is time for our extra credit segment. That is where we each suggest a story we read the past week and we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Margot, you've already done yours. Who wants to go next, Anna?
2: So mine is um, from Politico. It's by Sarah Car- Carlin-Smith and David Pittman. It's um, about a a value-based payment contract that CMS was trying to come up with uh, with Novartis for their cancer drug, um, Kim Raya. And that essentially is a pay-for-performance contract. So if this drug worked, um, Novartis would be paid more. And this is the first CMS, you know, the administration generally loves these value based contracts. CMS, this was their first yes, this is, attempt. This is the new shiny object <laughs> in, is, in healthcare. The, yes, and this was their first attempt at the new shiny object. Um, and it went down in flames because, one, you, you know, no one, the optics just don't look great because Novartis is the one that paid Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, you know, money to try and, you know, I guess, advise them on healthcare care matters. Um, and so it kind of, there was some concern that Novartis had too much influence over this contract. They essentially, the, the deal would have been that they get paid um, if the drug works within one month. And so essentially, like what experts said in this article is that this drug is going to look like it works on everybody within a month, but within a year, you're going to have a very different um, story to tell. And so Novartis kind of was able to to get more of a blank check in that way. Um, And so the concern became that Novartis had too much influence over it. Democrats were writing this Michael Cohen thing, and so they they basically scuttled the, the contract, and it is no more.
0: Well, the, the shiny object will have to wait for another drug.
2: <laughs> Julie?
3: Well, mine's a little bit on the lighter side, because I think we've had a lot of heavy news this week. So, uh, it's from the New York Times. I love the headline. It's, Doctor, your patient is waiting. It's a red panda. And it's by Karen Weintraub, and it's about a, a partnership between the Harvard Medical Students, um, the, the, the school, Harvard Medical School, and the zoo. And medical students take... At the zoo during their final months of training and it's not just because they're cute animals, but there's a lot of. but they are cute animals and there's some cute pictures of animals, but but there's a lot of interaction obviously between humans and animals and diseases can go back and forth and this is a chance for medical students to learn more about veterinary science and 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 I think it's just
0: a really neat little story. And there's there's lots of diseases obviously yeah. that can pass between the the, the Ebola, animal owners mind at the disease. table. Oh, I mean yeah. all kinds of things. Sure, yeah, but sure. They can pass between animals mm-hmm. and humans. All right. Well, mine is from our fellow podcast panelist Joanne Cannon in Politico. It's called "The One Big Winner in the Obamacare Wars," and it's about the amazing rise of health consultants and how they are adding to the nation's health care bill in ways large and small. And you really should read the whole story, but I just wanted to share my favorite clip. She says, "Quote: One self-styled consultant hung up a cyber shingle, promising to provide." physicians with the most comprehensive and integrative solutions for female sexual health through sexual wellness clinics, which may or may not be what you think they are. Um, so, so please read this story. Uh, and on that note, that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments and questions. We're at What the Health, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Rovner.
3: I'm at Julie underscore
2: Appleby.
0: At Sanger Katz.
2: At Anna Edney.
0: We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.